0: Oh God, those words from the 4th century, ancient words, remind us of the glorious truth that this season of the year compels us to celebrate of the Father's love begotten, the Eternal One who came and became Emmanuel, God with us. What does that teaching have to do to us, for us, in us right now? Let the teaching... These next few moments be clear to our minds and to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the question Is the economy going up, going down, or stagnant? The answer is yes. I was intrigued this last week to see the new Forbes. 400 listing of the wealthiest Americans this year. It's been a fairly good year for them. 217 of them are richer than they were a year ago, but a third of the 400 are poorer. Poorer being a relative term, of course. Total worth of these 400 richest Americans $1.37 trillion. That's an 8% increase, by the way, over the previous year. Out-earning the S&P, the Standard & Poor's 500 Stock Index, which rose only 1%. And our friend Bill Gates, for the 17th year in a row, is the wealthiest man in America. Although he lost his title this year as the world's wealthiest man, he lost it to Mexico's Carlos Slim. By the way, the newcomers to this uh, Forbes 400 are getting younger and younger. Time Magazine's Person of the Week announced just this week. You've heard it, surely. 26-year-old Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder of, I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's Facebook. His income this year tripled his personal fortune to a $6.9 billion total. You have to be a billionaire to even get onto the list. So here's the question. Is the economy going up? Is it going down? Or is it stagnant? Well I suppose that depends on who you are. I tell you what, if you're a, if you're a small house church in Macedonia, it's not going very well at all. Open your Bible with me please to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Some of us may identify rather closely today with the Macedonians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You didn't bring a Bible. You got to see this for yourself. Pull out the Pew Bible in front of you. It will be page 780. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, New King James Version is what I'll be reading from, which is our pew Bible as well. Ponder over this, brood over this for a moment with me on this week before Christmas. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, pick it up in verse 1. Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Do you know where Macedonia is? you remember Macedonia? It's the home. It was the home of Alexander the Great. You remember Macedonia. Now, the, Bible, the, the, the map in the back of the Bible I hold in my hands, the Andrew Study Bible, let's put it on the screen. Here is the, the map. You see the, uh, the heel of Italy there in the, the uh, left-hand corner, directly east of that heel. You see Macedonia. You see it on the map. And there will be, there will be cities such as Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. Now, Paul is writing about the Macedonians, but he's writing to Christians living in Corinth, and so drop down to Achaia, and there you'll see Corinth, directly south of Macedonia. So that's the setting, the Aegean Sea. That's the northeast quadrant of the Mediterranean. All right, so let's let's pick it up again now that we know where these people live. Let's pick it up in verse 1 again. Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, verse 2, that in a great trial of affliction... They've gone through some big time suffering that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Why is it that when you go caroling from house to house, we used to do those, do those little caroling bands. You remember that about this time of the year, caroling from house to house and neighborhood to neighborhood. Why is it that it seems the poor are always more liberal in giving? Paul is extolling these Christians up in Macedonia, impoverished, persecuted. He brags about them nonstop in this chapter. And he's speaking to the obviously wealthier Corinthian Christians, new Christians as well. And so Paul goes on. Let's pick it up in verse 3. For I bear witness, talking about these Macedonians, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond, beyond their ability. Some people are just that way, aren't they? Beyond their ability they were freely willing, imploring us, now here goes verse 4, begging us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now, whenever you see the word the saints in Paul's uh, letters, that's a moniker that he has come up with for the Christians living in Jerusalem, kind of the mother church, the saints. Now, what's going on in the mother church? You remember what happened in the book of Acts when the the, the fledgling infant church is formed they combined, they liquidated their assets and combined their holdings into a, a, a general fund. Remember that? A kitty. In fact, let's, let's take a look at this. What is this? Acts chapter 4. Put it on the screen for you. Now the multitude of those who believed in Jerusalem were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. All right. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid all those proceeds at the, at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So they have, this, they have this, central, this central fund. You have this communal fund. But when the economy drops, as it did in Jerusalem and Judea because of this, this, this statewide, this Palestine-wide famine, when the economy drops, a communal fund quickly loses its buying power, doesn't it? Hence, Paul, in his missionary journeys, is turning to the Gentile Christians who have come into this, this fledgling movement, and he's appealing to them, raise money for the folks back at home. In fact, here's his, book of, here, here's his letter to the Christians in Rome, and he's bragging about Macedonia and Corinth. Watch this. This is Romans 15:26. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, that would be Corinth, to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, if they've partaken from the, the, the rich Jewish legacy, the early Christian church in Jerusalem, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Which is precisely what, as we're reading here in 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonians are insisting, impoverished as they are, say, Paul, just take this. We've raised some money. Take this to the people. Take this to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And Paul is bragging about them. Let's read it again. Verse 1. Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God, the liberality of God, bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2. That in a great trial of affliction... The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Take our monies, they said. Verse 5, And by the way, not only as we had hoped, I love this, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of of God because that's the secret to Christian liberality isn't it you first you give yourself first all of you you give yourself to God and what the Macedonian Christians have done obviously they they have announced to God dear God we want you to sit and sit around the table of our lives and we're going to we're going to give you this chair it's the CEO what's the CEO stand for chief executive officer we're going to give you the CEO chair and we're going to give you the chair right beside it CFO who would that be Chief financial officer. God, you be the you be the CEO and the CFO of my life. That's what the Macedonian Christians are saying. All that I have and all that I am, you have it. You use it. You disperse it as you desire. I mean, look, when you've made God your CFO and your CEO, liberality is simply following the dictates of a heart that is already passionate about giving. So, God, you call the shots. We give. Verse 6, so we urge, Oh, we urge Titus, as co-worker of Paul's, a young pastor. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so that he would also complete this grace in you. So we send him down to you. So Titus comes down to uh, Corinth. But as you abound in everything, obviously a little wealthier, as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also, the grace of liberality. So where does the grace of liberality come from? Paul says, let me tell you, verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know, here we go now, here's the line, for you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So where does the grace of, of liberality come from? Paul says, you know, I don't have to tell you. You know that he who was rich became poor for your sake, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. That's where it comes from. So here's the question. Here's the question. How rich was Christ before he became poor? In other words, how rich was the pre-incarnate Christ before he became the away-in-a-manger baby in old little town of Bethlehem? How rich was he? Let's find out we're going to have now because it's the holidays you can do this you can't do this during the normal times but during the holiday, we're going to, we're going to play a little game of uh, biblical trivial pursuits I'm going to run these by we love to play games especially over the holidays so let's do this trivial pursuit question number one we want to find out how rich Christ was before he came Who is the richest man in all the Bible question number one Who is the richest man in all the Bible do you suppose it is huh who are you saying Solomon you're right Solomon. Let's go. Let's, let's put this on the screen. This is, uh, this is Solomon's holdings uh, described. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly. All right. So this is what comes to him every single year into, the, uh, into his treasury. The weight of gold that came to Solomon every year was 666 talents of gold. Let's just end the verse right there. So I have the Andrew Study Bible so I can find out how much are 666 talents of gold. And according to the Andrew Study Bible, 25 tons of gold. So I quickly go to this is on Thursday. I go to goldprice.org. I want to find out how much gold is selling for an ounce. This was at 11:25 on Thursday, if that matters to you. The price of gold per ounce was $1,368. So now I have to find out how many ounces are in uh, how many ounces are in 25 tons, and the answer is 800,000 ounces in 25 tons. So you do the arithmetic. Every year, King Solomon brought into his uh, income treasury 1.094 billion dollars per year, and that's just the gold. That if you if you read the rest of that passage, you would see all the other. Increase that he he enjoyed. Thus, we find this line. Let's put this on the screen. This would be First Kings ten twenty three. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. See, we always thought about the wisdom part, but he was also the richest man on earth, bar none. So here's Trivial Pursuit question number three. What did Solomon do with his gold? He was so rich. What did he do with his gold? Well, don't, don't even try to figure it out, because you won't. First Kings chapter 6, we'll just go back a few pages. And the floor of the temple, he, Solomon, overlaid with gold both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. He used gold on the floor of his church. It's just overlaid, you understand, but he uses gold on the floor of his church. I'd say that would make you rather rich, wouldn't it? Can you imagine just standing on gold here? That'd be beautiful, by the way. Now you, you, you need. So, but but remember, we're we're, we're pursuing the question: of How rich was Christ when he was rich before he became poor? So Solomon uses gold for the floor of his church. What about King Christ? Well, you know where this is going. Look at this: uh, Revelation, the Apocalypse, chapter twenty-one, twenty-one. The twelve gates. This is the city where Jesus has spent eternity past and will spend eternity future. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. I didn't find out what pearls we're going for today. We'll just skip that one. But the great street of the city, look at this, the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent, transparent glass. That's not gold overlaid. That's solid gold pavement. So who's richer, Christ or Solomon? Jesus wins, of course. Now look at folks, this is so superficial, this is so infinitesimal, but the point is when he was rich before he became poor, he was very, very rich. I like the way one commentator put it, but this commentator's words on the screen, his riches, speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ, his riches consisted of the nature and attributes of deity. If that's all, that makes you the wealthiest man in the universe the wealthiest God, I'm sorry, in the universe. His riches consisted of the nature and attributes of deity, of countless millions of worlds, billions of galaxies, billions and billions, and of the adoration and loyalty of multitudes of angels. End quote. How rich was he? Very rich. Ah, now we read verse 9 again, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So how poor was the Jesus that Christ became? How poor was he? Let's take the Greek word that's used right here. Paul chooses the word. This word for poor has as, has as its root, potoso, which means to crouch or to cower. Now, I grew up in Japan, post-war Japan. That would be World War II. And there were beggars. There were beggars. And do you know what a beggar does? Sure you know what a beggar does. A beggar never stands tall like this and says, Yo! A beggar crouches. A beggar ba- cowers. And tries to get, get into your field of vision and just put that little hand out. Paul says when, when Christ came, he became this poor. He cowered. He crouched. Vig Grig. Kiwi. From New Zealand. Moved in. Moved into one of the notorious barrios of Manila's slums and later wrote his book, Cry of the Urban Poor. He describes the poverty of Jesus as, and I like this, he describes it as non destitute poverty. He was not dirt, dirt poor. He had something. Non destitute poverty. Born in a box of cow feed, dead on a Roman tree. His final estate, that is apportioned out underwear and a seamless tunic over which these grubbing soldiers gambled. Non-destitute poverty. Conrad Baimer, Boehme. in his book, The Rich, the Poor, and the Bible, writes, I'll put the words on the screen for you, the founder of Christianity was himself poor. His identification with others was unprecedented. He gave himself up for the new community. The church is built on his self-surrender. He can be criticized in almost every respect. Criticized for his origin, for his status, for his pretensions. But one thing is irrefutable. His solidarity. Jesus is the embodiment of the poor man. End quote. That's how poor he was. Read it again. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Register this in your brain and carry it through the holidays, will you? Christmas is the stupendous truth of God's extravagant gift exchange. That's the point. Christmas is the stupendous truth of God's extravagant gift exchange. In fact, look look, look at Paul. Paul. He ends bragging on the Macedonians in chapter 9. Go to the last line of chapter 9, verse 15. Here's Paul's point. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I repeat, Christmas is the stupendous truth of God's extravagant gift exchange. In fact, these memorable words from that... that. Uh, unparalleled depiction of the life of Christ called the Desire of Ages. You remember these words. Ponder them anew. Put them on the screen for you. Desire of Ages, page 25. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which He had no share, that we might be justified by His righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was His. With His stripes we are healed. End quote. I repeat, Christmas is the stupendous truth of God's extravagant gift exchange. Ponder verse 9. For the rest of your life, you will never exhaust it. He, you, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who for your sakes, be, who was rich, but for your sakes became poor, that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. Which begs the question, really, how rich shall we be to the God who became poor for us? How rich shall we be? That's precisely the point. Paul is driving home to the Macedonians. Take a look at this. He says, hey guys, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Verse 6, chapter 9. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Verse 6, But this I say, I've been trying to say this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and she who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's the law of life. In any dimension of life, it's true. Now, verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. I like the NIV a little stronger in the NIV. Not How does the NIV put it? Not reluctantly or under compulsion. The New Living comes along and says, not reluctantly or in response to pressure. Oh great, I gotta give now, God? Ah, oh, you're always pushing me into this corner. No, don't give that way. No, 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 Paul says. Don't let somebody put the pressure on you. How should we give then, Paul? Look at the ending to that line. For God loves a what? Cheerful. God just loves a cheerful giver. That's how you give. Not under compulsion. Not because somebody's putting pressure on. No, 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 no. God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, I did some research for a book I wrote a few years ago. Do you know that the studies show that people who give cheerfully live longer? They have empirical evidence now. People who who give cheerfully live longer. Their immune systems are stronger, less susceptible to disease, happier, the happiness quotient. Those who give cheerfully. There's something in it. It's the residual quid pro quo, that God offers. You actually do better when you give cheerfully. Look, if you give grudgingly, no effect. It's the spirit in which you give. God loves a cheerful giver, just like the Macedonians, just like Jesus. So, hey, here's the question. Just like you and me, are you a cheerful giver? Am I a cheerful giver? Come on, be honest. Am I? Are you? Are we cheerful givers? Generous? You say, oh, please, Dwight, <laughs> this economic downturn. I'm no Bill Gates. You're probably not a Ted Turner either. I was on the abcnews.com website, and I saw an interview with Ted Turner. You know who Ted Turner is. He's the founder of CNN Cable News Network, eventually merged with Time Warner. I saw an interview with Ted Turner. Uh, he's being interviewed by Christiane Amanpour. You know who she is. She's become a rather well-known uh, journalist. She asked him about the collapse of the Time Warner stock that he was heavily invested in. He told her that it was so precipitous when that thing dropped, and the economy has dropped, when that thing dropped, the plunge was so precipitous that for three years straight, he lost $10 million a day. Maybe you've had a year like that. Huh? Have you? But in spite of his losses, Ted Turner has joined Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and a host of other rich Americans in pledging to donate to charitable causes the majority of their holdings, their assets, what they possess. Donate the majority of it by the time of their death. It'll be gone. The majority of it. Not all of it. The majority of it. All right? So, if you are looking for a charitable cause to donate to before your death, Or preferably before the end of the year. (laughs) I have some very good news for you. You are sitting in it right now. The Pioneer Memorial Church is a charitable cause. This church, I'm telling you the truth, this church only exists because of cheerful givers. You and I would not be here. Were there no cheerful givers? We'd be sitting out on the snow together. This church exists because of cheerful givers. Last year... $5.2 $5.2 million was returned to God in tithe from this little congregation. Not a penny of it stayed here. It all went up to the state and the region and the nation and the world. $5.2 million. This is a charitable cause that you're sitting in right now. By the way, that you pull out a tithe envelope. Do you have one of these sitting in front of you? Just go ahead and pull it out. I'm going to show you something on this tithe envelope. Very interesting. You see line one right here? It's tithe. Line one. It's tithe. It's what the Bible teaches. 10%, right off the top. 10%. God says, hey, Dwight, I'm going to check you out. Boy, I don't need your quarters and dollars. Trust me, I don't need it. I own the whole universe, Dwight. Understand this. But I'm going to check you out. I'm going to ask you to take 10% right off the top. When you get that money, I'm going to take the, t- take the first 10%, give it to me. In fact, I'm going to tell you something, Dwight. You're not giving it to me. You're returning it to me. It's mine. It's not yours. In fact, Dwight, if you spend the top 10%, oh, God, I'm in a real pickle right now. I'm going to spend it. Dwight, if you spend it, you are robbing me. I'm asking as a sign. That you want me to be the CFO on this side of your table and the CEO on this side of your humble little table. If you want me to be the one to direct your steps and to provide for your life in this life, I'm asking you to return to me what's already mine. And and listen, boy, when you do, though I do not need it, when you do, I'm going to do something special for you Watch this. I just love this in the New International Version. Malachi chapter 3. Let's put it on the screen. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, God speaking, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. You test me and see if I will not throw open, and here's why I like the NIV, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Do you like driving by the uh, dam here in Bering Springs? It's one of the great dams of the world. Have you noticed that? Sometimes when the river is up, when the river is up, there's so much behind that dam that they have to open the floodgates. And I'm telling you, it is just roaring out of those open floodgates. Brown water, but it's roaring out. That's what God is saying. I have so much up here. Yo, Dwight, I have so much up here that if you will make me your CEO and your CFO, I will crank open the floodgates of heaven and I will pour you out... How does it go here? Put that back up, please. I will, I will see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll take care of you. I promise I will take care of you. It's line one. Tithe. It's already is. Now, it's line two and below that make this a charitable cause. Look at line two. What's line two? Uh, PMC operating expense. That is the, I must tell you, this is the very unglamorous funding that keeps the lights on, keeps the heat flowing. Keeps the Sabbath school magazines going to all the tiny tots and the adults. Keeps the office staff working. Keeps the dozens of ministries growing. $575,000 a year. Pioneer is pioneer. $575,000 a year. Do you know what that calculates to? That's $1,575 a day. At this year-end moment, I can tell you that if you've been waiting for the opportune time to make a significant sacrificial donation... To the operation of this church, line two needs your charitable giving. By the way, tithing, I don't call tithing charitable giving. I call tithing cheerful returning. Because it's already his. This now becomes charitable giving. Tithing you can't keep, so you might as well just pass it on. Charitable giving is where you, by discretion, choose to help the church that you worship in week after week after week after week. Wow. By the way, the congregation voted some some time ago that if we all would set aside 3% of our income, we'd cover every base. 3% of our income, 10% for Thai, 3% for church operating. We'd cover every single base. Cuz you're wondering, listen, how much uh, what what should I do? Dwight? 3% suggested giving guide. And by the way, not one penny of what you give to church operating pays me or any of the pastors on this staff. We are all paid straight out of Lansing. So your offerings, whether they're up or down, do not affect us in, the, in, a, in a wit. It all stays right here. $575,000 right here to grow the Kingdom of Christ in this community and on this campus. Every ministry... Is, and I need to say this on behalf of the 1,000 volunteer leaders and volunteer... Workers in the ministries of this church, a thousand of them, on their behalf, I need to thank you in advance for remembering line two. Whenever you feel in line one, remember line two. That's what keeps the little Macedonian church in Berrien Springs going. And that's why there's line three, by the way, on the same tie. Then below Christian education, you know what that means? That's Adventist Christian education. That would be Ruth Murdoch Elementary School. That would be Andrews Academy. 500 young lives that we have committed ourselves as a congregation to support to the tune of 250,000 dollars a year. A lot of people say Andrews University. That's where. No, no, Andrews University is Andrews University. But this is these are these are two other campuses beyond the campus that we're sitting on. Andrews Academy. And Ruth Murdoch Elementary School. Church voting, what kind of money should we set aside? I said, hey, two to three percent. What if we all set aside two to three percent for Adventist Christian education? You said, Dwight, man, I'm doing the arithmetic now. You got ten percent here, you got three percent here, now you got two to three percent. You know what? You're gonna you're gonna make me end up with a double tithe. Well, that would be awful. By the way, that's what Israel did under extremely adverse circumstances, wandering around in the wilderness, they're giving a double tithe. Look at, look at uh, our friends here in Macedonia. Read verse 2 again of chapter 8. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Macedonian liberality, liberality that would be a double tithe, I suppose. <laughs> What's the point? The point is, as God who became poor for us, how rich should we be for, to Him? Oh, let me draw your attention to another line. It would be line 5. Look at this. Master plan of evangelism. You see that there? Line 5. This is Benton Harbor Street Ministries. This is the church plan up there called Harbor of Hope. This is television production. Not counting airtime. Get another $100,000 from you for television airtime. This is just the production week after week. This is web, this is radio, on and on and on. This year we budgeted $114,000 because, ladies and gentlemen, if we only give to ourselves, only for ourselves, me, 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 we will be, we will be of all people the most to be pitied. We have to give to the world around us. The, most, the second most per capita impoverished city in America is 12 miles up the road. We are responsible as a people for that little inner city. We cannot become myopically preoccupied with our own little world right here. And so the church said, oh, how about setting aside 2% for the for Master Plan of Evangelism? By the way, we're going into South Bend in just a few weeks. You're going to hear a lot more about it in the new year. I'm going, to, I'm going to do a series of nine public lectures. I perceive, little I, capital P, I perceive, a future you can count on. Why? Because we can't just sit here and talk to each other. We've got a world that Jesus says, reach the world for me. You throw in another 1% for Michigan Advance, which is helping our home conference right here in Michigan, put in another 1% for world budget, one or two, whatever, you're going to end up with another tithe. You you exactly will do that. You will have a double tithe. Oh, Dwight, please. (laughs) You can't do that. Oh, come on. How rich shall we be toward the God who became poor for us? You tell me, how rich should we be to Him? He's given us everything, everything in Calvary. This Christmas, I'd like to invite you to take this little tied envelope and you ask yourself, God, how rich would you have me to be to you after you have been to me? On behalf of God, on behalf of this church, would you be rich? Like the Macedonians, that rich. So, I, you're going to have me giving away everything by the time it's over. Nobody's suggesting giving away everything. Although perhaps we could learn a lesson from Alan and Violet Large, a retired Nova Scotia couple. Read about them in the news. Got it right here, their story from Yahoo News. And I want to end with this story. May I just read a line or two to you? A retired Canadian couple who won $11.3 million in the lottery. That's not the part I'm asking you to model after. All right. A retired Canadian couple who won $11.3 million in the lottery in July, this July, have already given it almost all away. Listen to this. Quoting 78-year-old Violet Large, explaining this to a local reporter, what you've never had, she said, you never miss. She was undergoing chemotherapy treatment for cancer when the couple realized they had won the jackpot in July in Canada. Her tearful husband responded that that money that we won was nothing. We have each other. Turns out the money was a headache, they told the paper. Mainly, it brought anxiety over the prospect that crooked people might take advantage of them. Several people called them out of the blue to ask for money when the news first broke that they had won the jackpot. So, they began an $11 million donation spree to get rid of it and help others, the newspaper reports. And here's straight from the newspaper. They took care of family first and then began delivering donations to the two pages worth of groups that they had decided on, including the local fire department, churches, cemeteries, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, hospitals in Truro and Halifax, where Violet underwent cancer treatment and organizations that fight cancer, Alzheimer's and diabetes. The list goes on and on. Quoting local restaurant owner Lori Hingley, People who know them just know that's the type of people they are. They're just happy to have each other. Isn't that something? It reminds me a lot of God, who gave it all away, who gave everything he had away. And because he did, we celebrate his birth. And because he did, we celebrate his death. And because he did, give it all away. Because he did. We choose. We choose, don't we? We choose freely. Without crying, we choose to give. Give it all away? No, nobody's, nobody can give it all away. But we choose. Knowing the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, we choose to give as much as we can to the God who became poor for us, just like the Macedonians just like Jesus just like that ending to Paul's line how did he put it second corinthians 9:15 but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift let's pray oh god thanks be to you thanks be to god what can we say You emptied the treasury of heaven for us. How rich should we be to the God who became poor, that poor for us? Lord, teach us. You coach us. Be the CFO. Be the CEO. All that we have, all that we are, we place them in nail-scarred hands. Take the little that we have and multiply it. For the sake of your kingdom, in this season of glad tidings, multiply it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.